At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Hello all, it's August 18th. Glad to have you here for another edition of Political Breakfast. I'm Lisa Ray, I'm your host. Our political strategists are here as well. Brian Robinson for the Republican side right here in Atlanta and for the Democrats there in Johnson who is sitting in the airport in Dallas. Good to have you both again. We're gonna jump right in today with our special guest, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger who is running for reelection. Brian and Theron were able to speak with him earlier and Brian starts the conversation off. We are joined today by the world's most famous Secretary of State in history, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Thank you for being with us, Mr. Secretary. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Brian. That's a great lead-in. <laughs> that never before in the history of Secretaries of State have people from their own state even known who they are, and yet you are nationally and internationally known after the 2020 election. I will start the conversation here by uh, bringing to uh, everyone's attention an op-ed that you had in USA Today earlier this year. And, of course, all of the attention around the decisions that you made, the leadership that you showed during the 2020 election, particularly the general election, which obviously there was a lot of consternation about the outcome, uh, closest margin in the country. And people all of a sudden began questioning how we run elections in Georgia. But you were raising the alarm about that even before this election happened. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us what kind of reception your ideas for reforms got from Republican congressmen and state legislators. Well, if you go back and look, one of the biggest challenges that we have today is actually federal laws like the 1993 National Voter Registration Act, NVRA. It was passed by President Clinton signed into law, a Democrat House, Democrat Senate. When we had the power of a Republican House, Republican Senate, and President Trump, we did not introduce a single piece of election reform. And probably one of the best things we could have done is update NVRA. The challenge with NVRA, many people aren't aware, is that you cannot update your voter rolls 90 days before an election. But you can put people on the voter rolls 30 days out. But here's what people need to understand. Pew did a study and said that on average, Americans, which be Georgians, uh, typically move about 11% a year. There's that much mobility in our society. When you have seven and a half million voters times 0.11, that's 800,000 Georgians that can move in state, out of state, in county, out of county, in precinct, out of precinct. Just very dynamic mobility. And 90 days worth of that is about 200,000 people a year. Uh, so yet a quarter of the year, we're stuck and we can't do anything about that. 
And and that's one of the things that, you know, really, you know, hurts the county election officials. They have lists that become dirty. And it's a shame that the uh, congressman never worked on that. But uh, obviously, one of the congressmen running for the secretary of state's office is now interested in election reform, uh, but never did anything when he was up in Congress. All right. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for the answer. It's good to be with you. This is uh, Theron. Um Good afternoon, yeah, good to see you. Thank you so much. Um, so um, I want to ask you a question that I think is on a lot of the minds of voters in, in Georgia. Um, you know, we witnessed a historic turnout um, last year in Georgia. And, and actually, Brian can attest to this. I actually praised you, um, even though your That's Republican true. colleagues didn't praise you for actually sending out absentee ballot applications to all active voters in the state of Georgia. But mm-hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question I'm about to ask. Um and that is, how can voters in Georgia um, feel confident that you're going to be able to do your job that you were constitutionally elected to do as Secretary of State at a time where Senate Bill 202 significantly reduces your role as Secretary of State? It, it totally takes you out of the process as far as removal and, and a lot of Democrats are calling a takeover in a county. So my question is, how can the voters of Georgia, particularly in counties like Fulton County, uh, feel secure to know that it will be a transparent process if Senate Bill 202 prevails, which allows two state senators, two state representatives to dictate that there are some voter irregularities in a county and then to come in and take over that election process. And the second part to my question is, what changed? Uh, in 2020, you said there was no wide voter fraud in Georgia. In 2021, from a lot of us who believes, I know you were under a lot of pressure from President Trump and a lot of his supporters, you now point out that there was some irregularities and sort of infers that there were fraud in counties like Fulton County. So the question is, what changed from your statements in 2020 to now your statements in 2021? Well, Theron, what I said is that there was never enough fraud to overturn the results of the election. But there's never a perfect election. There are always going to be you know, instances of fraud. And that's why we have a state election board to investigate that. But um, the Secretary of State's office still has the power, first of all, for oversight. Yes, uh, I'm not the chair of the state election board anymore. But I do believe introducing for the very first thing two accountability measures. Number one is to make sure the county kept their lines shorter than one hour. That's a good accountability measure. On election day, the average wait time statewide was under three minutes. So that was a victory for all the counties, all the voters. There were a few counties that uh, had some lines that were up to 50 minutes, but I didn't see anything on our leaderboard that was over an hour in the afternoon of Election Day. So that's good. We just want to make sure that counties continue that excellent progress. And so that's why that accountability is, is in place. But likewise, when you have a county that has failed since 1993, that's probably four or five secretary of states ago, that finally we're holding them accountable to make sure that you run your elections well. We were, for the first time after the June primary, we had the you know disastrous results that we had in Fulton County in the operation of the election. We were able to get a consent agreement that allowed us to put a monitor there. Carter Jones then wrote a very detailed report. We made it publicly available and everyone's had a chance to review it. What he said is very key. He said, I did not see any ballot stuffing or illegalities, but what I did see was mismanagement. But that mismanagement is just a breeding ground for conspiracy theories. That's why we need to have the ability, if things don't improve, that you can come alongside a county and make sure they make the changes. 
It will be a thoughtful process. Due process will occur. I believe that the General Assembly wanted to make sure that there was a a lawful and consistent, diligent process, not something that was just heard together. And I think that's what they've done. So there's going to be a review, and there'll also be a, a two county election officials that will be involved with that board members uh, as part of that review process. So we have uh, bipartisan, you know, Republican and Democrat eyes on it. So you don't have to worry about one side is trying to push the other side uh, to their advantage. You talk about the conspiracy theories with uh, Fulton County mismanagement. One of them has to do with the counting at State Farm Arena on election night. Why did it stop? Why were they packing up and going home and then and then starting back? There is a reason why that happened. Can you walk us through that? Why did that play out the way it did? What was happening internally at Fulton County that, that hasn't really gotten out into the public to explain why that mix-up happened? I believe that when Fulton County got around 10 o'clock, 10.30, they looked at the number of absentee ballots yet to count, and they said, we got so many left to go, we might as well just call a day. But when we found out about that, Chris Harvey, our former election director, told me about this. That's when he said, what are you talking about? It's not one o'clock yet. <laughs> We're quitting way too soon. But they already had pulled out their empty uh, ballot boxes. So those things that are called suitcases, those are actually official ballot boxes. They all had secure tags on them. You can verify that they were empty before the night, but they then opened those up and they put in the absentee ballots that hadn't been counted yet. They put those back under the table, and then all of a sudden they get a call, hey, uh, from Rick Barron, the state says that we're cutting – Who is it? Rick, Rick Barron, who is the Fulton County election director. Fulton County yeah. election director, yeah. then told that's his staff members, go ahead and let's, let's work a couple hours longer. So you saw them pulling them out. So if you look at the whole run of tape, you can actually see what transpired. And it was under 24-7 surveillance. Right. Did they break policy? Yes. Did they break procedures? Yes. And that's what will become before the state election board. But did they violate any, uh, any ballot stuffing or things like that? No. In fact, we actually called the GBI, had them down there, also called the FBI and had the FBI down there. And so the former U.S. attorney, B.J. Pack, reviewed the, all of that. And then when we had another U.S. attorney came in, when B.J. Pack resigned, he came in and he was quoting the AJC, I believe. There's nothing there. Mr. Secretary, I, I want to go back to my first question, which I don't feel like you answered. And I want to repeat both of them. How can the voters of Georgia feel comfortable and ensure that you as the Secretary of State of Georgia, who was elected by the voters as a constitutional officer, with Senate Bill 202 significantly removing you from the oversight. You talk about your offices involved in oversight, but you no longer have a position on the state board of elections. So how can how can you ensure the voters of Georgia that your colleagues, your Republican colleagues, punished you for what you did by standing up and following the law in 2020 election? How can we be confident that this process is going to be transparent and then secondly, to your to your last other question is, what are you um, going to how, how are we going to know that you're going to be able your office is going to be effective knowing that you no longer uh, have the ability to oversee these elections? Because now what happens with Senate Bill 202 is that outsiders can come into a county like Fulton County and run that election. How can the Fulton County voters feel confident that your office is going to ensure that you don't take away that power and responsibility from Fulton County? They're coming into the election. The state 
uh, election board really does not have a role. Their role afterwards is looking at violations and whatever, and reviewing that, and then sending any violations over to the attorney general for final fines or jail time. But during the election pr process and coming into the election process, we're working with the counties. We're the ones with the regional directors. We're the ones with the staff. We are the ones that are actually then have the oversight ability. And I think what I've shown is I'm going to make sure that we have fair and honest elections, and then I'm going to make sure that no matter who is trying to push me off the dime, that I'm going to stand for the truth and I'll make sure that the elections are fair and honest. I did had to, uh, you know, we had pressure to, that came to bear up to the last election. And I think that's fairly strong pressure that we had. And I think that if someone can stand up to that pressure, you can rest assured that I'll be able to stand up to any other pressure that could come my way. So simple question. There was no widespread voter fraud in Georgia, correct? That your office was able to determine? There was never a significant widespread voter fraud that would have overturned the election. For example, to your point, uh, they said that there were 66,500 underage voters. There were zero. They said that there were 5,000 or 10,000 dead people that voted. There were two. And so we continue to look at that. They said there was out-of-state voters, and we've drilled down there, and we're well under 5,000. Uh, we have some numbers as low as 2,500. Uh, and so we've really looked at every single point and added it all up. It doesn't everywhere come near, and even half close to being that 12,000 delta. And so that's why we say that, yes, there's some things that happen, but nowhere near that would overturn the results of the election. So my last question is, so which I asked you the first time, so what changed? If there was no widespread voter fraud that could be proven in 2020, and you said that on the record publicly, national mm -hmm. television, then what changed in 2021 for you now sort of inferring that there was all these problems that you just talked about? Is it fair for me to assume that you have received a lot of political pressure from your Republican colleagues, particularly who support President Trump? Did that lead to you sort of changing your narrative around the election? Well, I've not changed my narrative. What I've said is we want to make sure that we have confidence in the election results. In fact, in uh, January of 2020, before we had begun began the cycle, I said, I understand that we live in polarized times. I understand at the end of the day that half the people will be happy, half the people will be sad. But I wanted 100% to have confidence in the election results. Because you have to understand, Darren, when I took office, Stacey Abrams was talking about voter suppression. Now in 2020, we're talking about voter fraud. They're really just two sides of that same coin. And what both of them cause is they really cause a lack of confidence and they really distort, hurt our, our civic fabric. We need to restore confidence wherever we can. So therefore, moving away from signature match, moving to driver's license with photo ID based, I think that's a good thing. They've been using that in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota for uh, since 2010. So that is, you know, over 10 years that they've been using it and they like it up there. It's really a nonpartisan, bipartisan way, an objective measure. So I think that was good reform. I also think, Theron, that people were before could in, could request their absentee ballots up to the day of the election, the Friday before they'd be asking for an absentee ballot. You and I both know they would never get it. Right. So now we have an 11 day cutoff. There had to be a cutoff there. That's Absolutely. so you actually request your absentee ballot. Yep. The county can process it, send it back to you, and then you can get it back in there. So that's a good thing. So there's many good measures in SB 202. Uh, would I have preferred a, a different form of how you can handle these wayward counties that never seem to fix themselves? Yes. 
I've asked for the authority for myself to be able to come in and make the decision. But I also believe it would be better to have the authority to fire someone. But getting into the management of a county, let the county fix their issues because counties run elections in Georgia. You know, uh, there's so many of these election questions I think both of us would want to ask. But, of course, we are a political show, too. So I want to ask – do you think, and this is uh, this is just you talking. This is not talking points. It's just your thoughts on it. You as Brad, the the American, do you think Kelly Leffler and David Perdue were hurt politically for the January fifth runoff by calling for you to resign? What I do know is my general counsel got questions from both the campaigns, and all the campaign questions that he got from the Democrat Party were about the upcoming runoff. And uh, the questions from the Republican Party were about the presidential race. And so what happened as Republicans, I'll say this not as Secretary of State, but as a Republican, I believe that Republicans were looking in the rearview mirror at the past election and the Democrats were looking forward you know, to the runoff race. What do we have to do to turn our people? Uh, what are we going to do for an absentee ballot chase program? And so they were very f- focused in on the runoff race. And it did hurt us. Um, and so hopefully uh, from the political standpoint, uh, we'll move forward. Uh, but as Secretary of State, my job was to make sure we have fair and honest elections. Ms. Secretary, um, I want to ask you one more question. So your your office is set to remove over 100,000 voters from the Georgia voting rolls in a practice that is um, that detractors call voter purging. And um, in, in past cycles, hundreds of Georgia voters have been added to this removal list in error. I think your office has acknowledged that. Um, what is the process by which your office determines which voters are to be removed? And how can you assure that no voters have been added to the error? Um, I'm sorry, have been um, added in the error, in error to the removal list? Well, first off, there, when we put out that list, that's publicly available. So you can scrub that. Anyone can scrub that. So you can go out and contact that and see if they still live here. But it goes back to the issue of mobility. Many people move out of the state. But if you have not voted in two federal election cycles, so that's four years, and then have been inactive for about another three years, that's when we begin the process. But also, if you remember, in House Bill 316, it allowed us to join ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center. There's about 35 states now that are members of that. And so we can update voter rolls much more objectively. They're, they have great de- death records. That's a good thing. But also, if you move to Texas now, who's a member of ERIC, we'll find out about that. So then we can begin the process of notifying you. Hey, we see that you registered in Texas. Can we begin to take you off the voter rolls here? That's a very objective measure. I think that's going to help everyone on both sides of the aisle know that we're doing something with objective measures, not subjective. You've been listening to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Welcome back to Political Breakfast. We're going to get back to our conversation with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. So I, I have a question. I saw from your staff social media that y'all were at a Secretary of State's meeting up in Iowa uh, last week. Got to go to the Iowa State Fair. I saw. I I too have been. I have seen the famous butter cow, which is quite the experience. How were you received there by your fellow Secretaries of State, given that you are, as I said in the intro, the most famous Secretary of State in history? Uh, well received, uh, you know, both, on both sides. But Republicans understand that uh, it was a very contentious uh, election cycle. Uh, Barbara Sebasky from Nevada and myself, a Republican Secretary of State, and both of those states, you know, went for uh, President Biden. Uh, so obviously we were in a much more difficult spot than other folks but they understand that we're following the process and we're following the law. And that's what our job is to really is be objective and have really the right balance of accessibility with security. I'm going to ask you a uh, sort of a, a political question. And um, we've talked about this many times on the show, Mr. Secretary, and that is um, sort of your response of basically former President Donald Trump attacking you countless amount of times. And we all remember the call, which you may or may not can really give um, get details about. But my question is, how did that make you feel that President Trump, who's a Republican, and you stated this, that you voted for him, um, basically accused you of, um, of kind of taking, you know, uh, giving the election to Democrats? I mean, to kind of quote him, but basically you you um, were accused of not supporting Stop the Steal. So how did that make you feel that the former president of the United States, the two former U.S. senators who by the way, you know, as Brian mentioned, asked you to resign. And now you're being primaried um, by a Republican or two in your own primary who are probably going to echo some of the things that former President Trump uh, echoed about you to his supporters and why they should not support you. We've been pushing back and fighting all these liberal activist lawsuits from day one. Uh, we were up to probably about 13 to 15 lawsuits. So anyone was watching, we were never rolling over. Uh, we won several of those. We fought the lawsuit that came in during the election cycle that said we need to accept absolute ballots after 7 p.m. on Tuesday. We took that to the appeals court and we won. And so if people really looked at my record, they'll see that I'm a solid conservative, Ronald Reagan Republican. Uh, I think that- the A Donald Trump Republican even. You're one of the earliest Donald Trump endorsers in 2015 in Georgia. I believe that Steve Tarvin was the first, and I, I was up in the top five for sure. Uh, Steve Tarvin and I used to see, sit next to each other. Um, but yes, I supported President Trump. I voted for him twice. And, Max, and, and, and you're a donor. You backed up. And we, we contribute to his campaign. Yes. And, and, that, and that, to me, Rico, really, I mean, but how does that make you feel, Ms. Secretary? I mean, Brian Robinson is kind of, you know, softballing questions and reminding people to you. you oh, know, yeah. For anybody who heard the interview with B. <laughs> Wynn last week, that, they're going to roll their eyes at that there. You know, he, he's, he's helping you finish your sentences. But how did it make you feel? I mean, I know that you guys receive death threats. And, and Brian, I went on this show and other shows and definitely said that was wrong. Your wife uh, and family should not be receiving death threats for doing your job. But, you know, being called a, a traitor and saying that you betrayed the Republican Party, you do not stand for Republican values and being attacked by the former president and the former two U.S. senators. How did that make you feel? I'm a Ronald Reagan Republican and I believe in the rule of law. And I take it as an offense when someone says, what I've done is un-American. And so that uh, really was an offensive statement to me because I believe that the right to vote is our precious right. And it's something that Ronald Reagan would have supported and any uh, 
any constitutional, um, any person believing in the rule of law and a constitutional public, you know, you know, strongly agrees with that. And that's the side. If you look at my voting record in the state house, look at it on city council. I've always stood up for two really important constituency, taxpayers and small business owners. And so I always want to make sure I'm looking out for those folks and also the rule of law. And so that's why I so strongly believe that the only people that should vote in our elections are American citizens. And that's why I pointed out that we currently have a loophole that our state law precludes non-citizens from voting. So you have to be an American to vote according to state law. But the Constitution talks about American citizens, but it doesn't say about what about non-citizens. And there's a little bit of a, you know, a, a gap in there. And I just want to make sure we shut that down now. And so I, I'm asking and requesting that the General Assembly take that up as a constitutional amendment. I believe that all, you know, fair-minded American citizens believe that only American citizens should be voting in our elections. But, but Mr. Secretary, does, doesn't the state law currently... Um already prohibit voting from non-citizens? Is that not true? Uh, the state law does, but the Constitution does not. And just remember, the Constitution always trumps the state law. And that's why I said that we need to have a constitutional amendment. And I support there's two measures, one in the House and one in the Senate. And if any, those need to be refiled. Uh, but we need to move that forward in the next uh, session of the General Assembly. It's a safeguard against Democrats coming in and changing the law is basically the issue, right, Mr. Secretary? That's correct, Brian. Well, I want to make sure that down the road that we never have non-citizens voting in elections. Because if you look, when I was in the state house, I introduced a bill that only American citizens should should be on government boards, commissions, and authority, because those are quasi-judicial, quasi-political, judicial type uh, uh, situations, and you could have a non-citizen actually increasing your taxes if they're on a certain board. And so I believe that, uh, you know, citizens are the ones that should be that are sitting on as our juries and citizens should be the ones that are voting for our elected officials. Well, I, I'll, I'll finish with this is my last question. And uh, which was it? I got confused by some of the conspiracy theories. So we have these new Dominion voting machines with the big screens. That I thought were really cool when I went in there to vote. Uh, where was my vote changed by an Italian laser or Italian satellite, or was my vote changed by uh, the regime in Venezuela? I couldn't figure out which one had changed my vote from Trump to Biden. Could you tell me which one did it? It was changed by neither one of them, and you know that, and I proved it. Because when I said we had to do, we had to audit one race, one statewide race, I chose the presidential race. And I said, instead of doing a 90% risk limiting audit, we take a sample, two and a half million of the five million. I said, no, let's go ahead and do a sample size of all five million ballots. But I'm going to up it one more. I said, let's go ahead and recount those, retally those by hand. And when we did that, we didn't look at the the text, the QR code, we looked at the human readable text, and we laid those out on the table, one for President Trump, Biden, and Joe Jorgensen, and kept on doing that. We proved that the machines did not flip the votes. We also verified the count. And that's why I can tell you that Vice President Biden carried the state of Georgia, and we those electoral votes were awarded to him accordingly. Mr. Secretary, I have one last question for you, and then, um, well, it's a two-part question. Um the first one is uh, your office just came out with the new absentee ballot application um, that forces 
voters to mail sensitive personal information like driver's license numbers, social security numbers, and, or a photocopy of identification when they apply for a mail-in absentee ballot. So I just want to make sure when people apply for an absentee ballot, these are things now, information you're requesting. Do you have any concerns that forcing voters to send this information via mail might make voters more susceptible to identity theft? And then my last question is, what is your response to uh, the allegations around Herschel Walker's wife voting illegally in Georgia? Uh, Herschel Walker's uh, wife, uh, that's something that we just heard about two weeks ago. And so uh, we don't have an answer for that at the present time. Uh, But he was one heck of a football player. Let it go at that. <laughs> and I do agree with you on that, Mr. Secretary. Yeah, we, we're all on board there. Player. Yeah, that's bipartisan. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't want to be in front of him right now, even at his age. He'd be like a freight train still. Absolutely. Uh, he, he, he is a killer. Uh, to your other point, um, the uh, bill uh, for absentee ballots, if you have a driver's license, uh, then you just put down your driver's license number and your birthday, day, month, and year. But we do have to, we give people, if you don't have that, then other forms of identification, and that was put into state law. And uh, we have to r- rely on the Postal Service to make sure that there is no mail fraud, uh, but we don't control the United States Postal Service. Right, the judicial. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us today. I do think that we, between my questions and yours have kind of gotten, I mean, between my questions and Theron's, have gotten to some of the issues raised by the Republican side and the Democrat side, uh, who obviously are approaching these things from very different ways. And thank you so much for your time and the clarifications. I do think it was very helpful. So thank you and and good luck out there. And and I just want to add this to Ms. Secretary. Thank you for answering. I know my questions were tough, but, you know, Brian and I both have constituency groups that we represent. And so I appreciate you uh, always being available and honest uh, about how you feel about these issues. And you can come back on the podcast anytime you want. Thank you, there. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. And, and, and go back, listen to B. Wynn's interview from last week. It's it's, it's good content. And uh, and what you'll note here is that when she attacked Republicans, it wasn't you. You know, she, she went much harder after other Republicans than you. So I do think it shows the level of respect they have for, for the what you have done. Thank you. Thank you, Kent, there. Thank you. We'll see you. Brian, one of the things that I was most impressed with um, with our interview with Secretary Raffensperger was his ability to answer every question. Um, there were questions that I threw at him that I knew Democrats and Republicans wanted to know the answer to, and you know he didn't he didn't seem sort of very um, um, you know thrown off, and, uh, and especially you know I tried to get him to tell us how he felt. I know that wasn't a good feeling to be attacked by two U.S. senators and, and, and the president. So I would say that. You know, based on this interview today, I think he has definitely done his homework and is anticipating a lot of the questions to be asked about the process that I asked him today. Yeah. No, I was like, what in the world's going on here? There's there's doing the research. I mean, he's just obviously he's been looking up this stuff, came in prepared like he was coming in for an oral exam. Uh, yeah, I was I was surprised. I tell you, my takeaway from that, from your tough questions was he wasn't defensive. He didn't get his back up. He was like, here's the answer. I, and I thought that was really well done. And uh, because there's a tendency, you know, in our tribal media these days where you're, you're used to just talking to friendlies. And uh, I think he handled that very well. You know, uh, I want to ask you something. Get your take on this. We have never in Georgia history seen someone get on the ballot as an independent 
in a general election and win. You know, we have libertarian candidates on there. They never do all that well, 2 3%, maybe 1%. Given the challenges that Raffensperger would have in a Republican primary, you got Trump endorsing his opponent, Jody Heiss, congressman from Georgia, makes it the pathway to victory really hard. We, we, you and I both know that politics uh, changes fast. You know, next May is a long ways away in politics. But we have to acknowledge here's, here's a challenge. What would happen if this dude got on the ballot as an independent? Listen, I think he, based on this interview and based on, you know, what I've heard other people say about him, I think he's going to struggle as a Republican nominee, right? I think he knows that he's going to have people running um, who are more conservative and more right, and they're going to have the support of President Trump. Um if he runs as independent, Brian, I think it becomes a question whether, you know, he's done well for himself, right? I don't like counting, counting on the people's money, but I think, you know, he, he definitely has been able to um, make a living for himself. So he would have to have— Well, a, we know he spent a million last time. He spent a million last time, so I think he would have to be close to spending maybe close to $5 million to just yeah. continue to stay relevant. So I think it's a money Absolutely. question for him to try to run as independent, and I think he would have to weigh heavily on that. Because the, the money yeah. that the money that you get from being the party's nominee is just unmatched, and we know that whoever the secretary of state is on the Republican side, whether it's him or someone else, and whether it's B. Win or someone else on the Democratic side, they're going to be well financed because it's just going to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into Georgia uh, for these yep. statewide races. Absolutely true, and he would he would get off of that that gravy train. Although I'm not sure that in this in this in this environment, if he was the nominee, that he would be he, that they would have him on the gravy train. You know, it's it's a toxic environment right now. Well, I thought the Herschel Walker answer to me was a, a glimpse of the sense of humor that you did a really good job of bringing out of him too today with your questioning. And so, um, look, I I think. We're going to have him back on again, and, and I think, um, you know, he's going to have to continue to communicate with the people of Georgia. And um, running as an independent, Brian, I think you're onto something. I think that may be something that his supporters and his team is probably considering. I think ultimately, though, um, I, saw a man, I, you know, I saw and heard a man that had a lot of pride. You know, he kept emphasizing that he's a Reagan Republican, that he wants to stand up for the law. He wants elections to be secure and he believes in the right to vote. And so I don't think he's going to run from this fight. No, no, will he right. win? I don't know. But I don't think he's yeah, going to yeah. run from the fight. It's a great thought experiment. We, we haven't seen it happen here. It's happened in other states, but not here. Part of that is because ballot access for third parties or people who aren't Republican or Democrat is very, very hard in Georgia by design, I might say. So. There, there is that that challenge. I wonder beyond the money issue is is it different for him because he has this celebrity status? I mean, I was kind of joking around about him being the most famous secretary. Of yeah, State I thought that was a little bit of a stretch, but you, you kept you kept going with okay, it. Okay, it, it, name one, <laughs> name one who's more famous than Brad Raffensperger. Um, two that come to mind. How can we forget? Catherine Harris down in Florida, Fair who, point. Was, who was the Secretary of State during the Bush v. Gore uh, recount. And then also, I'm just a huge fan of former Secretary of State, now U.S. Senator Alex Badia, uh, who was um, just revered by a lot of his peers because California is ahead of the game as far as voter registration and automatic voter registration. But I will tell you this. I think you're just saying that because you want to say Alex Padilla to show off that you know it's not Alex Padilla. Correct. And he's and, he, and he's a he's a dear friend of mine, too. I, you know, I got about five senators, Brian, now that I can actually 
um, get them to hit me back on the text. So I'm, I'm trying to get that well, number. I have continue. one, and it's because of you. Well, that's true. That's true. And and yeah. you all have become uh, quite um, the the acquaintance. You know, you guys are corresponding with each other from what I when I hear in a good way. So that's that's good government yeah. for Georgians. No, I do want to say we never got around to this. Um, but we're talking about Senator Ossoff, and um, he he isn't fast on text, but he does get back with you. And I want to praise him for something I, in, in a bipartisan moment, and I feel free to do this because I have been very partisan for the last few months. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he has hired some of my favorite Democratic staffers over the last 20 years, and uh, one is Donnie Turner, who is his legislative director, who I worked on the Hill with when I was there in uh, Gingry and West Rollins' office. She was with Congressman David Scott back then. She's now his top policy person. And then on the state level, and she's actually uh, a few floors above me here in the building where I am now, where my office is, is Chandra Harris, who has just uh, worked for uh, David Scott here and now his, is also state director, one of the most competent, uh, likable uh, can-do kind of people you could ever have as a congressional staffer. So congrats to him on having some really good folks there. Also, Theron, big news last week for Georgia. The census numbers came out. Here's what struck struck me. 50.1% of Georgians last year, last April, were white. Now, that tells me that today we do not have a majority. That today it is probably majority-minority white plurality. Is that is that your take? I think what's so interesting about these numbers, Brian, since we started this podcast now almost, you know, seven years ago, what have I been talking about? The demographic shifts, right? You know, that was my one thing when we took that defeat in 2014. I said, if we just keep plugging along, we'll be able to, you know, catch up uh, with the demographic, the demographic shift that's happening in Georgia. And so I truly believe, Brian, that we are a majority minority state because I still believe that a lot of minority voters and minority residents are always undercounted. So for us to just be at 50.1, I believe— that was last year. Yeah, that was last year. So I think now, when you look at the 29-county MSA, which was a stat that I thought was very interesting, 10 years ago we were a majority white MSA, 29 counties in the metro Atlanta area. Now we are a majority um, minority county, particularly with an influx of Asian residents and Hispanic residents and African-American residents. And even in places like Johns Creek— which is a city that's located north of Atlanta in the suburbs that now is a majority minority city. And so, you know, people. But not black, which is fascinating. Exactly. Right? Notice what I said. I didn't say it was a majority black city. No, you didn't. So right. people with money are still moving to Georgia. And the other stat, Brian, to ducktail this into why I think the mayor's race is going to be so important. We did see a significant increase of white voters that are in the city of Atlanta proper. Now, we know yeah. that, that 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 has been growing every year for a while, but now you've seen a, a bump in the last 10 years. And so that's got to play a pivotal role in sort of, um, you know, the white vote and who will turn out in this upcoming mayoral race. But we are a majority minority state right now. Um, the Hispanic and Asian voters are up for grabs. I think Democrats have done a really good job of cultivating their support. Uh, you guys have definitely made some strides, too, with um, Cuban voters in the in Latino community. And also, I know that you've uh, been dealing with some of the Asian voters. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how this affects us politically. You know, one thing that I've really seen is uh, Indian Americans particularly getting involved on the Republican side as as donors. And that's a lot of what you're seeing there in, in North Fulton, in East Cobb. And uh, if if some of those numbers begin to go to the Republican and we can continue to peel off 
particularly black men, that's going to be how uh, Republicans have a shot at countering the narrative that you've been pushing for these six years, Theron, that demographic change insistently uh, means that it's Democrat victories. And I, I was with you. For most of these six years, I've been with you. I'm beginning to see some minority communities more receptive to Republicans, and it's been somewhat surprising to me. You know, the House pickups, U.S. House pickups last year were in areas that were majority Latino, um, and that's that's a fascinating little statistic there. And I, I wonder when we're going to begin to see more of that in Georgia because one thing that Brian Kemp and whoever the Republican LG candidate is, whoever the Secretary of State candidate is, they cannot win in Georgia in 2022 without significant minority votes. You, It's, it's no longer like, hey, we're going to try to you know, get some pride points by getting in double digits with black voters. No, you are going home if you don't get some black voters. And you can make up some of it with, with, with Latino and Asian voters, but there's still not enough of them to really crack crack into what the black vote represents in in this state brian i know we got a few more minutes we're going to close out here can't um, not close out and not talk about what i will publicly say and i've said this before the growing momentum for the possibility of a robust conversation around the creation of the city of buckhead Um, there was an article that came out this um, week that showed that a lot of residents when asked the questions uh, about where their top priorities are, of course, shocking. It was crime and public safety. Um, also read that uh, the same poll has 63% of registered voters in Buckhead saying they would be more likely to support a legislator who favors giving the community the right to vote on cityhood. What do you think is going to happen in this upcoming session around this conversation around um, cityhood and, and creating the city of Buckhead? Well, that poll came back and showed a tremendous level of support for at least giving voters a chance to say whether or not they want a city or not. It didn't ask, do you want a city? It asked, do you want a vote? And it was overwhelming. I think that that the votes are in the General Assembly, particularly in the state Senate, for this to pass. There is momentum for it. And frankly, you know, Republicans are looking for ways to show that they are taking action on crime which is hard to do on the state level to some degree. It's largely a local function. But by attacking the Buckhead issue, by giving them that vote, it's a way of signaling, hey, we hear you. We know you're concerned about crime. We are too. We're going to give you an out. We're going to give you a way to to give the this area of Atlanta more power to fight this, this problem. And I think whether or not it becomes a huge agenda item in the session in January is the outcome of the mayor's race. If it's somebody who voters take seriously that can take on crime and change the trajectory we're on, I think that takes a lot of the steam out of this engine. Well, for for our listeners, everyone uh, who's been uh, on the debate stage, who's running for mayor, all but one person, Antonio Brown, all of them except him said absolutely no to the city of Buckhead. He didn't commit to the city of Buckhead, but he said that he would be open to, you know, I guess seeing kind of, you know, 
what that would look like. Um, but we also know that in the, state, in the state of Georgia and city of Atlanta right now, this is qualifying week. So we'll know next week on this podcast who actually qualified to run for mayor. And don't worry, Brian, I'm, I'm not going to go down and qualify on the last day. I know you would want me to go do it to uh, get off this podcast so you don't have to deal with me every week. But um, <laughs> my, 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 well, that would definitely help the Bucket City movement, right? <laughs> Except for then you would you would be you wouldn't be eligible to be mayor of Atlanta as a Buckhead resident. All right, man. Well, great conversation, man. Good to see you. want to thank you for joining us for Political Breakfast, this edition. And we want to say a special thank you to our special guest, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.